Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to the fifth episode of The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. We hope you enjoyed yesterday's special episode with Tony Blair. If you haven't listened already, it's the episode before this in your podcast feed. In today's show, we'll be making our way through as many of the extraordinary questions you've all sent in during the week on Twitter and email. So, Alistair, question from you. Well, my question of the week is from a gentleman called Bobby McDonough. You may remember him. He was the Irish ambassador to the UK. His question is as follows. Ireland inherited so much from the UK, rule of law parliamentary democracy, independent civil service, ethics in public life. Do either of you see any chance of these being restored in the UK anytime soon? It's so depressing. I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't tell you how depressing it is because... <laughs> and he's a diplomat. He's a and diplomat. He's, he's a diplomat. I'm having to defend the UK now round and round the Middle East, and it's really sad. I mean, it's very, very sad for British diplomats, I'm afraid, mm. because it is true that with all the grumbles about Britain... There was a general sense that, you know, maybe we were hypocritical, maybe we had a very complicated past, but there was a sense that the rule of law mattered, that decency mattered, that moderation mattered. And my goodness, we're ripping it up. I mean, it's Mm. just horrifying, just week after week after week. It's just, and and as you say, everywhere you go in the world at the moment, people are just sort of saying what's going on. And when I watch Johnson, I mean, like I know we're both sort of, everybody knows we're not fans of Boris Johnson. But when I watched him at the G7, did you see him sort of grabbing Macron, sort of grabbing him and, and pulling him in and saying, oh, entente cordiale, entente cordiale, and sort of rubbing himself up against him and desperately trying to pretend that they were somehow very, very close. And there was, it was just revolting. Then the thing where he's around the table and you've got a woman there, Ursula von der Leyen, and he's saying, why don't we take all our shirts off and show our pecs, show that we've got a bit better pecs than Putin? I mean, the guy's just a fucking embarrassment to us. Sorry to swear, but he just does my head in. No, no, it's 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 very sad. Shall I get? Shall I try something a little bit a little bit yeah. funnier? Yeah, go on then. This goes back to your unbelievable vision in thirty seconds last week, Rory. John Greenwood. My wife lost her glasses. She thought they were in the car or in her handbag. They weren't. Rory, you were wrong. <laughs> so I had, I, had, I had a good had a good chance from my friend John, who's a, a a very very active listener, but quite quite an active critic of this program too. And he'd lost his mobile telephone and he found it in a Tupperware jar in the fridge with some mealworm that he'd been keeping to feed an owl. (laughs) That's excellent. Now, listen, talking of criticism, Andy Fuller, it's a bit of an existential question, this. Much as I'd like to listen to you two, what is the point or the objective of political podcasts like yours? Hold a second. Hold a second. No, I, think, no, I, think, I think we're part of the same thing that we were talking about with Tony Blair yesterday. We're trying to find new ways of expressing a new approach to politics and new ideas. But he's got a point. I mean, what is Come on, Rory. What is the point? Why are you yeah, doing sorry, this? I think the point is, here's my best stab at it. I think politics, democratic politics, is about dialogue. And the reason why when this podcast works, it works best is that as humans, we work best through two voices engaged, sometimes in argument, sometimes agreeing, but 
working our way through opposing views together. That's what, that's what makes for democracy. That's what makes for civil society. Okay. Here's a question for you. If either of you had to, this from Martin Edwards, if either of you had to have a week off ill, who would you choose to guest on the show on each other's behalf? You can choose anyone living or historical. Or to stand in for me. Uh, I guess, yes, yeah. that's right. You get a, someone to stand in for you. Yeah, that's right. I'm going to say... The, the face that popped into my head when you said it was Alan Johnson. Alan Johnson, very good. He'd be quite good, wouldn't he? Yeah. He'd be great. He'd be great. Great, great replacement for you. I was thinking for me, Danny DeVito. <laughs> oh, my God. Now, listen, you're obviously not in a serious mood, so I'm going to take you to a serious place. Because do you know what subject we had more questions on than any other by a mile this week? By a mile. I, I'm praying it's not the Northern Ireland Protocol. No, it was not the Northern Ireland Protocol. It's Roe Wade. Ah, okay. I mean, that is pretty extraordinary. That's an American change. We are two Brits, most of our, not all, but a lot of our listeners in the UK. And Charlie Hancock, with Roe Wade being overturned, can the US continue to function with such legal diversion between states when abortion access is such a divisive issue? Tom Parkin, why does, why does centre-left progressive side of politics struggle to point out the many extreme conservative beliefs in the US and UK are no longer conservative, e.g. Roe Wade? There's just so many questions. And I just wondered, you're married to an American. I mean, how does she feel when she, when she heard this news? Well, I, I think, like many, many people in the United States, deeply depressed, deeply sad about it. I mean, remember that, I mean, that, that Roe vs. Wade, that, that judgment was made in the month that I was born. Mm. And I'm almost 50. We generally assume the world gets more progressive over time. Mm. That over 50 years, we, we definitely found this in Britain with attitudes to capital punishment attitudes towards homosexuality, attitudes to gay marriage, changes are made. And as the decades pass, more and more people become comfortable with them. And mm. I think it would have been unimaginable in 1973 to say, look, we'll get this passed and it will hold for 50 years. And then in 50 mm. years time, a conservative backlash will undo it. So I think she's shocked and horrified. I think she has been trying to get her head around the types of arguments that the conservative judges were making, which are these originalist arguments about the Constitution. They're basically trying to argue that at the time when the amendment on privacy was introduced, the majority of states in the United States were outlawed abortion. Um, and I think it's important, actually, and she, I think I don't want to speak too much for her, but it's important for Democrats like her and people who are very much against this ruling to make good legal arguments, mm. not just get drawn into the rights and wrongs of abortion, which is a hugely important issue, but also work out how, if, God willing, we had some more thoughtful and sensible Supreme Court justices in place, mm. we can get the argument right. Because this is sadly very, very dangerous because the same arguments, basically that the Constitution was framed by a bunch of white guys living in the 18th century, could be used to overturn most of the progressive yeah. legislation in the United States. My Fiona, not your Fiona, my Fiona, she said, can you imagine it even happening if you had a group of seven women telling the world's men that there came a time in their life when they had to have a vasectomy or whatever? You know, there's just, it's just kind of, it's seven men who've sort of just taken... And, and one woman, America, and Sorry, and, and one, one woman uh, taking yeah, America yeah. back. And, and then there's lots of questions like this from A. Tate... Um, lots of people are saying this couldn't happen. This could happen here. 
Evidence, 99 MPs voting against the lifting of the Northern Ireland abortion ban in 2019. And then Lord Moylan, who's one of the most ridiculous persons in British politics, he and Lord Frost are my two least favourite Tories at the moment, probably, apart from the entire cabinet. Uh, he said, apparently he has said that he thinks he could come near. And there was a debate going on Twitter, on, our, on the rest of his politics Twitter feed, between that Baratheon girl and Califativia Six. Baratheon girl saying that the abortion overturn would never happen here uh, because we're a much more liberal society. And Califativia Six saying that, worrying that with the NHS possibly up for takeover by US healthcare and with people like Steve Baker pushing on issues like this, that, that actually thinks it could happen here. Do you think we can be sanguine or not? I think we should be a little concerned because one of the odd things about a more connected world is it's not just a way of progressive views spreading quickly. It's also a way of conservative views spreading quickly. One of the reasons, for example, that Uganda suddenly became much more uh, reactionary about reproductive rights. So the president of Uganda, for example, ruled against people wearing condoms um, is because of pressure from evangelicals in the United States. And I can see in some of my conservative colleagues that they have a loss of interaction with evangelicals in the United States. Now, admittedly, in the Conservative Party, it's still a fringe, but it was a fringe in American politics 50 years ago. So I, I, I do worry. I worry about how these things are organized, and it's part of the general polarization. And it's also the power of the, the religious right. We were talking to somebody who's engaged in a, a kind of international conference recently which, which lots of women's issues were being discussed. And it was somewhere, I can't remember exactly where it was, it was somewhere in Africa. And the religious right, American religious right, were in hotels. I'll tell you what it was, it was a church meeting, it was the world's churches. And the religious right, American religious right were banned from the conference, they were in hotels all around the conference Texting, following the debates and texting their de their delegates yeah. from these churches to tell them how to vote. They're an incredibly powerful force now, and they're very, very, very right wing. And weirdly, that of course they famously made this unholy alliance, to quote your friend Tony Blair, with Donald Trump. Um, that mm. they they're capable of, and in the same way as the ERG did with Boris Johnson. Yeah. Here's a question from Joe Greenfield. Why won't the Labour Party support workers on strike? Why are they sanctioning MPs who supported people on picket lines? I just don't get it. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a good question, though. I, I, I think I talked earlier, we've talked earlier about my sense that Labour's just in a very defensive crouch about too many issues. I was talking at Bradford uh, Literature Festival this week. I was interviewed by... Do you remember Richard Lambert, the ex-editor of the FT? Yeah, yeah. And it was a very, very interesting... Like Bradford... It was, okay, it's a literature festival, but it's, it's, a, it's a very different sort of festival to, say, Cheltenham or Hay. They give out lots of free tickets to poorer uh, people from poorer areas. Um, it was a kind of middle-class, working-class audience. And honestly, they were, they, every time I said anything to, about my loathing of Johnson, sort of wild applause, any time I sort of uh, went on about Brexit and how awful it was for the country, they were all with me, pretty much. And yet there was this sort of, you know, why aren't Labour kind of speaking out like you are about this, this, this and this. And I do think that on the, on the strikes, they're in a defensive crouch on that. I mean, I don't think you have to even say we support. You can go out and say 
These strikes should not be happening. We wish they weren't happening. But trying to make this about Labour's relations with the unions is ridiculous. This is about austerity. It's about people not being able to afford to live. And the unions are absolutely entitled to make the case that they make for their members. You, you don't have to be so defensive about it the whole time. And do you think they should allow MPs to support people on picket lines instead of sanctioning them? Well, I think, put it this way, if I was an MP and I had the rail strike going on in my constituency, I would see nothing wrong in going down to talk to... The fact that they go and talk to people on the picket line, does that mean you're supporting the strike, that you're standing on the picket line? Some of them do, fair enough. That's a sort of gesture politics, if you like. But the idea that because they're on strike, you don't engage with them. And added to which, I think the old Mick Lynch, we talked about this last week, I think he's sort of, he's kind of carving out a sense of himself being a bit of a national treasure. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It's really yeah. bizarre because I'm, and I've been watching his, his technique. People say, obviously, uh, on Twitter, his supporters say it's just because he speaks the truth, but it's more complicated than that. He's got an extraordinary deadpan expression. He's got a great way of letting the other person dig a hole. Absolutely. And one of, it, and one of his strongest things. Yeah, strongest way is to turn around and say, what on earth are you talking about? Or, or just accept it. If they say, you know, <laughs> What's a picket line? He says, well, what do you think a picket line is? It's to stop people who want to go to work from going to work. <laughs> what about this one? Let's stay with Labour for a while. Amy, was Keir Starmer over-egging the pudding in saying that the by-election win in Wakefield was putting Labour en route to government? I think he is over-egging the pudding because, of course, they did not do remotely well in Tiverton. And by that was my choice, though, Roy. That, I mean, they basically pulled out. They didn't campaign. Yeah, which was your advice, wasn't it? You told told the lady to hide in the dance studio. I oh, know that was the other one. Liz um, Pole. No. <laughs> <laughs> dance studio. Oh, God. Yeah, famously, the famously, your, your your advice was for the lady to hide, and then it wasn't the Labour candidate who took your advice. It was a Conservative candidate who went and hid in a dance studio during the count because she was so embarrassed about the result. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, Wakefield, of course, was a significant Labour victory and a big swing against the Conservatives and a big big problem and. Mm. But it's Tiverton that's really going to make Boris Johnson or should be making all Conservative MPs really worried about Boris Johnson. I mean, you know, it actually, on that score, Boris Johnson will lose his own seat. Jacob Rees-Mogg will definitely lose his seat. Hooray. Dominic Raab would <laughs> definitely lose his seat. So, um, yeah, I think that's the big one. And Wakefield... Oh, Monica Harding. Wakefield, my goodness. I mean, if... Labour didn't put in a good performance in Wakefield when yeah. the previous MP had just been done for rape of a minor in a traditional Labour heartland seat. You know, here's a question which maybe I suppose we're going over old ground again, but what can Keir Starmer learn from John Smith and Tony Blair's leadership and the run-up to power when the Conservative Party was then mired in scandal and waning support? Surely there are parallels to be drawn and that to be the not Johnson option on its own isn't enough. That's from Alex Fenner. Well, I would say the one thing I would learn from John Smith is to have a policy development process like he had with the Social Justice Commission. I was talking about that, funnily enough, in Bradford yesterday. I think the Social Justice Commission was a really effective piece of policy development because it was basically saying, these are the big challenges, these are the potential policy options we can look at, and it was a way of kind of dominating the debate without coming up with the detailed policy until much later. And I think what you can learn from Tony Blair is, is kind of, you know, I think we saw this yesterday. It's all about the detailed policy and the strategy around that. So I would, I just like to say, be more strategic, be more strategic, be more aggressive, understand that campaigning is a 24-7 occupation in opposition. Beautiful. Right. Ready for the break. 
you were probably signing your own death warrant. Well, probably, but I'd moved into damage limitation mode. Who killed Liz Truss? I'm Robert Peston from The Rest Is Money, and we've been telling the story of the worst financial crisis faced by a British government for 50 years. The consequence of the catastrophic mini-budget. And now I'm talking to the Prime Minister. At that time of extreme chaos, Liz Truss. Over the course of two episodes, I ask her what she knew and when, how much responsibility she takes for the crisis, who she blames, and of course, who killed Liz Truss. Listen to The Rest is Money now, wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back to The Rest is Politics Question Time with me, Rory Stewart. And me, Alistair Campbell. And let's start with this question, Rory. It's from somebody on Twitter called Begging Your Pardon. Why is Rory the one who always seems to call time for the break or the end of the show? Is he the junior partner in this podcast just in charge of timekeeping? It could be that. There's another possibility, which is that I sometimes wonder whether it isn't that what happens is you get on to the subject of the one thing where you're super, super earnest, which tends to be your immense abiding respect and admiration for Tony Blair. And I find a strong temptation to draw you to a close before you get a bit boring. Fine. Thank you very much indeed for that. I'm actually much more earnest. I'm much more earnest about the Northern Ireland Protocol, Roy. Should we go to that one <laughs> And Burnley, of course, which famously and, I raised and, and, at a long time. Burnley. Right, listen, I, there's, there's one here. Um, Will Young. I'm sure it's not that Will Young, but it might be. How relevant do you think time spent in the military is for the job of an MP? It seems to me that the only MPs with any moral compass on the Conservative side are ex-forces. And I guess he's meaning Tobias Elwood, uh, Tom Tugendhat, Tom maybe. Tugendhat yeah. Johnny Mercer, possibly Rory Stewart, but of course you're not an MP anymore. Um, but there's something in it. And, and is Bob Stewart? He's ex-military, isn't he? He is, yeah, yeah. Not sure about him, though. Ben Wallace? Ben Wallace, that's right. Um, so I, I guess... It's an interesting one. I mean, firstly, I was only very, very briefly in the military, and those guys serve much longer. I think there is, though, something important for all of them in their training, which is that the army at Sandhurst, and actually in, in all sorts of training in the army, put a huge emphasis on honour and decency and leadership. They, they feel very, very strongly about moral qualities of leadership. I think there is a downside, though, sometimes. I mean, I, I, there was a guy um, who was a Daily Mail a very, very long-standing Daily Mail journalist now died called uh, something Alexander? Andrew Alexander. Yeah, I want to say Andrew Alexander. And I remember having having lunch with him just after I'd become a new MP. He was a business writer, wasn't he? Yeah, I, he did a lot on the Tory party. He was a bit of a sort of Brexiteer. And I remember him saying to me that he was always a bit suspicious of, the, when I suppose I knew him, he was in his 80s, um, he was saying a bit suspicious of too many army people because he thinks they're too obedient. Mm that they're trained to be frightfully kind of loyal and follow, follow <laughs> well, where the leadership Oliver, goes. I'd say Tugendhat, Tobias and Mercer and Stuart are not really well, showing that they, at the moment. They've kind of cracked. I mean, I think that's what's fascinating about Boris is the way in which he's managed Boris to break Johnson. that. Uh, Boris Johnson. Is that he's managed to break that. that because mm. I think all those people with somebody like Theresa May, even if they disagreed with her profoundly, mm. Um, would probably try to keep it under wraps. In the Commons, did they not used to say, if you were in the military, you were the honourable and gallant member? When did That's that stop? It. Well, actually, weirdly, Prissy Patel still did it whenever I spoke. It's, it's a, it's a, I think you can still do it. Um, I think <laughs> The honourable and gallant member. Yeah, um, 
Here we are. I love this question. Catherine Manning. If you had to spend the day with three people, different stages of the day, who would they be? And while you think of it, I'll give you mine. Okay. It would be a room service breakfast with Princess Diana. What? Uh, it would be... We, we don't want to get that far inside your head. That's, yes, that's... we do. We do. Fiona knows. She's read the diaries. It's sort of, you know... We're... So de- definitely, uh, it would be playing football with Diego Maradona to relive the best day of my life. <laughs> and it would then be going to the theatre with Shakespeare to watch one of his plays. I think to watch a Shakespeare play with Shakespeare would be wonderful. And then going for dinner and Jack Brell and Elvis would be playing at the piano. Oh, it's beautiful, Alice. It's really beautiful. I don't, I don't think I can do better than that. Well, you're going to have to. Which three people? Oh, and by the way, uh, while you're thinking of it, yeah. somebody, else, somebody else said that you said you'd like to be number two to Alexander the Great, but you didn't give any reasons. That's true. I didn't give any reasons. So let, let me talk about what him. Um, I, I'm fascinated by him. Uh, what, one thing I love about him is that as well as being a extraordinary military commander, he was a great founder of cities. He built, for example, Kandahar. In Afghanistan, he believed, I mean, it's just a stretch to, to apply this to people who lived 2,300 years ago, but his approach to Iran, Persia, was to insist that his Greeks married Persians, and he embraced the language, he embraced cultures, he genuinely tried to create a multicultural, what we now call, I guess, a pluralist society. Mm-hmm. And But the thing I've always loved most about him is that when his soldiers mutinied, his immediate instinct was to jump right into the center of the crowd when all his generals were begging him not to because they thought he'd be murdered and just trust that he could, by being face-to-face with people, talk them out of it, win them around. And I, I'm hypnotized by that. I think, I think there's a reason why people put him on their coins, why people remembered him for... Right, he's, he's one of your three then. Who's, who are the other two? I, well, the problem is I'm a bit like, it's going to sort of slightly irritate you because I, you know, I love people like that. I, I'm obsessed with Tolstoy. He's just not just very smart. I think he's much funnier than people realize. I, I love his sense of humor. Number three. But, he was, but he's famously a bit dull to, to spend time with. That's the problem with a lot of these people. I Number guess. three. Number You'd three. rather with Tolstoy and Alexander yeah. the Great. So, than so I think Diana, since I'm of. being so high mind, high minded, I think it's going to yeah, it's got to be Alexander the Great, Leo Tolstoy, and Natalie Portman. Uh, obviously, <laughs> obviously for That's her extraordinary better. Yale okay. education. Um, now here's one for you, Kath Foster. Do secretaries of state actually do anything, or is the work all done by civil servants? How is it possible that somebody can move from education to the foreign office and, and remotely be across the brief? It's a good it's, question, and and. Of course, sec- good secretaries of state can adapt pretty quickly and they can, they can learn very, very fast. But it is a bit of a weird system, isn't it? It's completely weird. And I went through, I think, six ministerial portfolios in my pretty short time as a minister. It, it's mad. It's completely mad. And, of course, it means that an enormous amount of power must rest with the civil service. And that's why I'm heartbroken about the fact the government hasn't been recruiting more fast-stream civil servants, basically frozen recruitment at the moment. Our whole system relies on an incredibly high-quality civil service because, frankly, ministers are amateurs and they're moved around very quickly. And so, you know, somebody like you or me or, you know, many of my colleagues, we can master a brief, we can sound pretty articulate and confident, and we'll have instincts about certain kinds of things. But if I think about my job in DEFRA, I was responsible for all 
the chemical regulation in the country, all the flooding, all the national parks, the Environment Agency, Natural England, biodiversity, tree health, air pollution, recycling, uh, waste. And the idea that actually I was on top of all those things, let alone, you know, rural affairs, community development, all of which sat within my portfolio, is obviously for the birds. And yeah. the, I wish we were more open and honest about this because our whole mm. system is pretends that people are responsible when they can't possibly be responsible because they just don't know enough about it. Yeah. I want to answer a question directly from Tony Stokes. He said, I'm taking up Alistair's advice and I'm going to go on holiday to Albania. Oh, very good. Uh, do you know, can you give me some advi advice on places to visit in Tirana? First thing, restaurants in Tirana are fantastic. It's very Italian influenced. They're very cheap and incredibly good. There's a very, very nice park near the, uh, near, near the main hotels in the center. Um, and there's a wonderful museum of where you can go and look at what Tirana was like in the days of the, uh, the dictatorship and all the kind of surveillance stuff that was done on citizens, and it's really, really, really interesting. So if you've got one museum, that's the one. There's a very nice art gallery, fabulous restaurants, and very, very, very nice people. So I'm glad you're going there, Tony, and have a lovely time. And let me add on to that uh, as my final thing before we wrap. A huge recommendation for somebody that both Alistair and I like a lot, which is the Albanian writer Ismail Kadari. And Ooh. if you want one to start with, great 1970 book called The Siege, which is an extraordinary account of an Ottoman siege, which takes you right into the heart of Ottoman and Albanian culture. My favourite Ismail Kadari book is the one about, I can't remember the title, but it's one about blood feuds in a family. It might oh, be yes. Called, is it called Blood Money? Anyway, we'll, we'll find out. We'll put in the choice. We, 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 there was one question I think we ought to cover. Just, um, Go on, then. And we'll do this, do, do this to close. A question from Tom Hill. In light of last week's by-election losses for the Tories in Wakefield and Tiverton, should Labour and the Liberal Democrats be pursuing a united approach at the next general election? I think they barely need to. I think what's extraordinary is that people have learnt how to vote tactfully, tactically, almost intuitively. It was extraordinary how basically the Lib Dems and Labour lost their deposits. And but the do you think, that, do you think that will happen on, at a general election in the same way? I mean, I'm loving the fact, I'm loving the fact that the right-wing papers and the Tories and the ridiculous Suella Braverman are getting so aerated about this. Every time the mail has a go about all this tactical voting, it just makes people more aware of the power of tactical voting. So long may the rancid Dacre, before he's elevated to the House of Lords, long may they continue to do that. The, the, the Duke of Dacre. No, it'll be Dacre of the Downing Street press office. I, I agree with you up to a point, but actually I think, the, particularly if Johnson's still there, but even if he's not, I think the loathing of this government is such that now the driving political force is actually to get rid of them. And I think that means Keir Starmer being prime minister. Getting a majority government is going to be incredibly difficult because of the, you know, just how many seats have to be won over. And therefore, I see nothing wrong at all in saying, you know, and I would openly say, even if I were back in the Labour Party, if I was living in a Liberal Democrat, Tory marginal area, I would say I'm voting Liberal Democrat. I hope everybody else does. And I hope Liberal Democrats told Labour people to... Uh, to to, you know, do the same and Liberal Democrats to vote Labour where the Tories can be beaten. Very good. And here's here, just in case this is the books you're talking about, the, the two Ismail Qadari books that I can remember is Broken April is about medieval vendettas and Spring Flowers is about more contemporary vendettas. No, there's another one. There's another oh, one. No, okay. We'll find out. I've got it on my bookshelf at home, so bookshelf at home. So I'll, I'll, after the podcast, I'll post a picture of it.
Very good. All right, Alistair, thank you very much. Have a great conference. Bring peace to the world from Jordan. Sadly, I won't be at Tony's conference. I'm continuing to spend my time with Saeed Awasi, trying to find the the Channel 4's alternative prime minister. Give a a kiss to your bicycle from me and see you next week. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye-bye.